0: Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. We give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because Everytown no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Top four criminals caught by confessions. Countless murders happen every day, yet only a handful are ever solved. Sometimes the only thing detectives can hope for is that the killer would come forward and confess to their crimes. Whether out of guilt or searching for fame, the people on this list did just that. These are the top four criminals caught by confessions. Number four, Cosmo DeNardo, In Bucks County, Pennsylvania, between July 5th and July 7th, 2017, four young men were indiscriminately murdered by two cousins. 20-year-old Cosmo DeNardo is the son of a wealthy businessman, and this isn't his first brush in with the law. He's had more than 30 run-ins with the police, but somehow has never been charged or convicted for anything. Meanwhile, his second cousin, Sean Kratz, had been in and out of jail following several burglaries, including stealing a dog and lawn equipment. Despite being cousins, the two were never really that close. In fact, they only started hanging out in the months prior to their gruesome killings. On July 5th, the first victim became Jimmy Patrick. DiNardo and Patrick were once high school classmates, and on that afternoon, Patrick wanted to buy some weed. DiNardo deemed himself a middleman and offered to sell some to Patrick, telling him to bring $8,000 for a large amount of drugs. But Patrick only showed up with $800, and for that amount of money, DiNardo offered to sell him a gun instead. Patrick humored him, and as he turned to try it out, DiNardo shot him in the back, killing him. According to DiNardo's confession, he simply went and got the backhoe, dug the hole, said a prayer, and put him in the hole. He then said he burned Patrick's money because he didn't want it. Two days later, on July 7th, DiNardo picked up his cousin, Sean, before meeting with Dean Finocchiaro for another drug deal. Donardo was supposed to sell Dean two pounds of weed, but the cousins had other plans. According to Sean, he wanted to go home instead of going along with his cousin's plan to rob and shoot the guy, but was too afraid of DiNardo to say no. All three went to the DiNardo property in Salbury Township and followed a dirt trail into the woods. It was here that Sean was supposed to shoot Dean, but he hesitated. DiNardo then took them into the barn and again gave the signal to Sean to pull the trigger, and this time he did. After the victim fell, DiNardo took the gun away from Sean and shot Dean multiple times to make sure he was dead. They emptied his pockets, covered his body with a tarp before using a backhoe to lift his body and place it into a pig roaster outside the barn. Shortly afterwards, DiNardo got a call from Tom Mio to arrange another drug deal that day. The cousins agreed they were going to rob him too, but let him live. But when Tom showed up with his friend Mark Sturgis, the unexpected company made the cousins change their plans. Tom and Sturgis were immediately shot by the men as they exited their truck. DiNardo also ran over Tom, who was still alive, using the backhoe, killing him instantly. Their bodies were then placed in the same metal pig roaster, and they were left to smolder. The following morning, on July 8, DiNardo received a phone call from his hysterical mother. She said Dean was reported missing and that DiNardo was the last person seen with him. Sean said by this time, his cousin was fired up and wanted to head to the farm again to get rid of the bodies. They tried to bury the evidence, torching the victim's phones and burying the tank containing the three bodies after they had unsuccessfully tried to burn them. Eventually though, police tracked down Dean's cell phone at the DiNardo's farm. On July 10th, Donardo was arrested on an unrelated weapons charge since he was suffering from schizophrenia, he was not allowed to own a gun. He was later released from jail after his father paid 10% of the $1 million bail charge, and two days later, he was arrested and charged for stealing and attempting to sell Tom's car. It was suspicious because Tom's insulin injection was still in the vehicle. Donardo's bail this time was set at $5 million. then the following day he confessed to the murders. In exchange, the prosecution would not seek the death penalty. Cosmo DiNardo received four counts of criminal homicide, abuse of a corpse, conspiracy to commit murder, and several other charges. For these, he received four consecutive life sentences. Meanwhile, his cousin Sean initially signed a plea deal as well and gave his confession, but at the last minute backed out of the deal and pled not guilty for some reason. Now, he will spend the rest of his life behind bars as well. Number three, Brian Hawkins. For 25 years, Brian Hawkins from Redding, California kept a dark secret and it was that he had killed a man. One day, Brian walked into the KRCR news station and said he was sick of running and that his newfound faith in God and Christ along with his own conscience had convinced him to admit his role in the murder of then 19-year-old Frankie McAllister. Frankie's body had been found a year after he went missing in May of 1993. His vehicle had been abandoned in a Costco parking lot, Blood was found on both the interior and exterior of the car. Even though police managed to identify Hawkins and the Culver siblings to be the last people seen with Frankie, they've maintained their innocence and because of lacking evidence were never charged. When Brian confessed, he related that during the time of the crime, he and two siblings, Curtis and Shayna Culver, found out McAllister had inherited insurance settlement money and wanted to buy methamphetamine to sell for profit. Hawkins said he knew someone from Shingleton who sold drugs and all four agreed to drive there. Ultimately, it was Brian and Curtis who stabbed the victim to death and left his body to rot in the woods. They then took his money and his car back to Redding and left his vehicle in the Costco parking lot, where it was later found. However, accounts of what really happened differed between each of the suspects. Curtis claims Hawkins did all the stabbing. Hawkins, meanwhile, claims Curtis stabbed McAllister inside his vehicle, and then Hawkins later stabbed him outside the car. Shane has said that McAllister dropped them off near Redding Park, essentially the same story the trio told police during the initial investigation. Regardless of who was telling the truth, all three were arrested. For many people who thought Frankie McAllister's brutal killing would go unsolved, they found relief in the fact Hawkins finally confessed to the crime. When asked why he was moved to finally admit to the murder and what he felt, he had this to say. Horrible, 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 absolute horror. Absolute horrible since that day. Every minute of every day has been a nightmare. It's kind of weird. Frank never got to have a life. But we were teenagers and now I'm 44 and still haven't even had a life, and now most likely won't anyway. I've been through hell my whole life because of this. Number 2 Robert Durst Born to New York City mogul Seymour Durst and his wife Bernice, Robert Durst is one of four children. Even as a young kid, he appeared to have psychological problems. He once underwent counseling for his sibling rivalry, and in 1953, a psychiatrist diagnosed him as having personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. By the time he was in high school in Scarsdale, he was described as a loner. He went on to enroll in a doctoral program at UCLA after college, and this was where he first met Susan Berman. Eventually, he became a real estate developer, but the family business was later appointed to his brother Douglas instead of him. This proclamation caused a huge rift between Robert and his family, leading to eventual estrangement. In 1971, Robert met dental hygienist Kathleen McCormick. They moved back to Manhattan and married in 1973. The marriage ended up on the rocks, and over time, Durst began a relationship with Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence, three years prior to Kathleen's disappearance. Kathleen had also asked for a divorce, but Robert refused to pay for the settlement. On January 31st, 1982, Kathleen visited her friend's house unexpectedly. Her friend noted she was very upset and after this meeting, Kathleen left for South Salem after receiving a call from Robert. Durst said they did fight, In fact, three weeks prior to that, Kathleen was admitted to a Bronx hospital with bruises on her face because Robert beat her up. No charges were filed, but ever since leaving her friend's house that night, Kathleen had never been seen again by any family or friends. It wasn't until February 4th that Robert reported his wife missing after a medical school called and said she didn't show up for her classes. No one knew what had happened to Kathleen. Her family believed she was dead and that Durst most likely had something to do with it. By December 24th of 2000, Robert's friend and longtime confidant, Susan Berman, was found dead inside her Benedict Canyon home. She had been shot in the back of her head, execution style. During the time, Robert was in the same area and flew to San Francisco the night before Berman's body was found. When police investigated, it was discovered that Berman had received $50,000 from Durst just days before she was killed. According to Durst, Berman told him that the LAPD wanted to talk to her about Kathleen's disappearance. However, this was unlikely to have ever happened. Durst was never linked directly to Berman's death, but his statements and actions after her murder were very suspicious. Most likely, it seems, Berman was killed because she knew details about Kathleen's disappearance, and possible murder. Durst then moved to Texas, rented an apartment, and started posing as a mute woman to prevent police from further inquiries. On October 9, 2001, he was arrested by Galveston police after the body parts of Morris Black, an elderly man who lived across from Durst's apartment in Texas, was found floating in the Galveston Bay. Durst posted bail, but was arrested and put back in prison the following month for bail jumping. He was found trying to shoplift a chicken sandwich and band-aids from a supermarket in Pennsylvania despite having $500 in cash on him at the time. A further search of his rented vehicle showed he had two guns, weed, Morris Black's driver's license, and $37,000 in cash. According to Durst, he didn't kill Black directly, but the two had fought over a gun and it fired in Black's face, killing him. He then admitted to dismembering the body and dumping it in the river. Black's head was never found, so the story of being shot in the face couldn't be corroborated. Nevertheless, despite the confession, the jury acquitted him of murder. He was sent to prison on other charges shortly after, but was paroled in 2005. By early 2015, Robert Durst agreed to be filmed and interviewed for a documentary called The Jinx about his involvement in the past three crimes. During the closing minutes of the series, he was heard muttering to himself while he was in the bathroom and off camera but with a microphone still on, What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. This statement has provided prosecutors with a chance to try Durst again for the disappearance and the murders. Currently, he is awaiting trial. Number 1. Henry Lee Lucas Born in Blacksburg, Virginia, Henry Lee Lucas had a dysfunctional childhood and family life. His dad was an alcoholic and his mother was a sex worker. As a child, he was forced to watch his mother have sex with her clients and she would often dress him up as a girl. She also beat him heavily, even hitting him once with a plank on the head that sent him into a coma for three days. When he was 10 years old, he suffered an accidental eye injury. His mother ignored it until it got infected and it had to be removed and replaced with a glass eye. By this time, Lucas had become an alcoholic, and his brother and Uncle Bernie, who was his mother's lover, had introduced him to animal torture and bestiality. According to his own account, his first sexual experience in murder happened when he was 14 years old. He said he abducted a teenage girl at a bus stop, beat her, raped her, and strangled her to death. Some name this victim as 17-year-old Laura Burnley, but this has never been confirmed. Henry spent years in prison afterwards for the numerous burglaries and robberies he committed. On January 11, 1960, he was living in Tecumseh, Michigan, after his release from jail. His mother visited him and insisted he go back home to take care of her. They got into an argument, and that's when Henry stabbed her in the neck. She then died of a heart attack precipitated by that attack. Lucas was sent to prison for 20 to 40 years, but released after only 10 due to prison overcrowding. But after just one year of freedom, he was sent back to jail for five years for attempting to kidnap a 15-year-old girl at gunpoint. After he got out, Lucas befriended petty thief Otis Toole. The two developed a sexual relationship and both moved to Jackson, Florida. Both men were obsessed with rape and murder. According to Lucas, he and Tool went on to commit several crimes together. Lucas also became close with Tool's young niece, then 10-year-old Becky Powell. From 1979 to 1981, Lucas and Tool worked at a roofing company together, but at the same time, they also supposedly committed countless murders, 108 to be exact. Later on, Lucas lived with Becky for a while. He showed care for her, but eventually killed her in the end, as well as his employer, Kate Rich. 1983 lucas was finally arrested for unlawful possession of firearms and it was after this arrest that he went on a confession spree He was placed in a jail in williamson county texas and investigators say he confessed to numerous unsolved murders Initially investigators said there was a positive corroboration in 28 unsolved crimes So a task force was created to link lucas to the crimes As a result of his multiple confessions, approximately 213 unsolved cases were cleared. However, some detectives were suspicious of his countless confessions. One of them made up a fictional crime scene to see if Lucas would confess to that, and he did. Another detective tried the same tactic and got the same results. It wouldn't be long before Lucas eventually stretched his confessions, including claiming that he had supplied the poison in the Jonestown Massacre. He also claimed to have killed people in Japan and Spain, despite not setting foot in the countries, and that he also killed Jimmy Hoffa. Whether all his confessions were real or not, Lucas was found guilty of nine murders in Texas alone, including that of Kate Rich and Becky Powell. He was also convicted for the murder of a Jane Doe dubbed as Orange Socks, since this was the only piece of clothing the victim wore when she was found. However, records show Lucas was in Florida during the time of the murder and could not have done it. In the end his death sentence was commuted to life in prison. Henry Lee Lucas died behind bars on March 13, 2001 due to a heart attack. So there were the top 4 criminals caught by confessions. Murder confessions aren't common, especially for hardened criminals, but sometimes the detectives get lucky and the killer decides to share information or admit to a crime without much prompting. This often leads to a breakthrough and finally solving the case. If you enjoyed this video, then please subscribe to our channel because we have new videos coming out every Wednesday and Saturday for you to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you soon.